Hello everybody and welcome to Community Accountability. We are here with our second segment of our Road to Redemption story. I'm here with Dana Ladd to share her story with us, so we'll jump right into it. Uh, Dana, could you tell us, um, let's start with like your childhood. Where, where, before anything got crazy for you, let's just talk about how you came up. Alright, so I lived, um, my dad and my mom met in, when he was in the military. Okay. And actually know the Navy. So I lived in North Carolina. I was born in uh, Durham, North Carolina at Duke University Hospital. Okay. Uh, my dad and my mom are both severe alcoholics. So when my mom was pregnant with uh, my sister, we ended up moving to the reservation where my dad went to Maine and he decided to get sober because his life was just unmanageable. Yeah. Um, so we ended up living on the reservation and the reservation is full of uh, sexual abuse and all that stuff. So my mom would leave us at houses for weeks on end. It's she, almost like its own world, like its own government, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it is. So she would leave us at houses for weeks on end, Ooh. forgetting where we were. So when I was little, I was molested on the reservation. Damn. Yeah. Um, so your childhood was a lot of just abuse based on the neglect? Like yeah. you just nobody was really worried about you where where you were. Yeah. Very quickly get into your into a mindset there where it's just you yourself and I, right? Like you got to look out for you. Yeah, it was my brother and I. My brother, he was a like my best friend growing up. Um, and then my dad ended up going to get custody of us because at that time my sister was six months, I was two, and my brother was four. Oh, babies, man. Yeah. So my dad ended up getting custody of us. Um, so we moved up to Maine. And, and he was sober? Yeah. All good? Okay. Yep. Cool. Um, and so he was he was a millwright, so um, he would go like from wherever they would need him to work, he would work until he got laid off and all that. But he was a single parent of three kids. Um, so I give him a lot of props because back in the 90s, yeah. you know, they didn't have a lot of single dads. So no. it was hard for him to get help from the government. Yep. Um, in certain states, I know that, that certain states are just quote-unquote mom states and they, there's nothing you can do as a, as a single father because the benefits aren't set up to help you. Yeah, I think Maine was one of them. Yeah, yeah, Ohio's definitely, I would consider, a mother state. Yeah. But Michigan's definitely. a little bit more flexible. Yeah. They're yeah. more of a custodial parent state. They look at it like that, you know? Yeah. Um, so, fast forward a little bit to when you first, so you have a history of abuse and, and uh, or of you know, you know, physical abuse, but then also substance abuse in your past. Mm -hmm. Where did that start for you? When were you first exposed to substances? Um, well, when I was 16, I was sexually assaulted mm. again. Um, and then, so from there, I held it in because I was really ashamed because I didn't, like when it happened, I froze. You know, you get yep. that fight, flight, or you freeze. Yep, fight, flight, or freeze. Yep. And like, I didn't know what to think. I remember I just wanted to cut my left hand off because the guy made me give him a hand job. Yeah. And it like completely destroyed me. So I started cutting. Mm. Um, and then it just went from there to a toxic relationship. And when I was in that toxic relationship, I was 18 and I started drinking. Okay. So and alcohol was the first yeah. thing, you, you know, drug you'd ever tried? Yeah. Because some people will say drugs and alcohol. Alcohol is a drug. Um, that's just my personal opinion, but yeah. It is. But anyway, so so you started drinking. When did you notice that that 
started to become like I guess a dependency or an issue for you? I would miss work. I would just, you know, be, I was like a kid, pretty much, 18, yeah. Yeah, getting celebrity. drunk. And then around here, it's like, you. there's all these parties every weekend, that was the thing to do. Go yeah, and we're, we're, I don't know where you guys are listening from, but we're in Fulton County, Ohio, and <laughs> Fulton County, Ohio is known for cornfield and barn parties, and uh, we didn't go clubbing, we didn't go out to bars, we through house parties, so yeah. I, I've been to a lot of them, I, I know <laughs> yeah. that. Um, so it was just the party that you were kind of getting yourself, that was the habit you were falling into? Yeah, just, I would be a sloppy drunk, just yeah. sloppy. Yeah, I can relate to that actually, I have been there at one point in my life where, you know, you look, you wake up the next day and you're like, hey, fuck, I can't believe I did that, you Yeah, know? I can't believe that that, that was really me. Um, so, so what happened next? You're 18, 19 years old, drinking a lot. And then I was introduced to coke. Okay. So I did coke. I never really felt the effect, so I don't know if it was just cut really bad. bad. Coke. Yeah. Because yeah. around here, you know, like... <laughs> you never know what you're getting. You could be sniffing baking soda. Yeah. Um, I was actually... It's very similar for me when I was a teenager. Um, was just out partying every weekend. Everybody would... Every Friday or Saturday night, someone was having a house party, and I was introduced to coke. I, however, did feel the effects of it and enjoyed it a bit too much. Um, and I wouldn't say that, because that, when I was 18, I met my husband now, mm -hmm. um, and he loves to say, I saved your life. Um, but really, in a sense, he did, because once I met him and got into that serious relationship, I had stopped using it. But I was on a path there for a year or two where it was about to be really, really bad. Yeah. Um, so how long did you use cocaine? I used coke on and off until I was probably about 27. Okay. I ended up moving to California in 2006 with my boyfriend at the time. He was really sick. He was um, he had kidney failure. He had lupus when he was 14, so oh. he was on um, end stage kidney failure. Mm. He was on dialysis. His mom had passed away here in town, so we ended up flying out to California where his dad lived, oh, and wow. he was hoping that living in California is it's bigger so he'll have more of a chance to get a kidney okay yeah but he was also prescribed every single pill that you could imagine he was prescribed volume xanax oxys percocet morphine well where is this doctor speaking of community <laughs> accountability that's exactly what this this podcast is about overall this segment is a road to redemption but this podcast is all about community accountability, and I am in no way knocking doctors. Uh, they are far, far more qualified than I am uh, to decide if someone needs medication or not, but you, you cannot deny um, the, I think, the neglect yeah. of, you know, th th doctors are just throwing them out these days. I've seen several of my friends who are, or at the time, were active drug addicts that could just They'd go to the same doctor and they'll get their they'll get their Suboxone. They didn't have to ask for it. They didn't have to. They knew they'd walk in, get their Subutex or their Suboxone, and they'd leave. Yeah. And that's dangerous. That's that's an, that's another story though. We'll save that for another segment. <laughs> um, so you're in California. Uh, your boyfriend is trying to to find a kidney and trying to you know survive this this disease. Um, but in the meantime, he's being prescribed multiple strong strong medications yeah and and did you see him develop a dependency on those he definitely did but he was also giving them to me so, so you developed a dependency yes yeah, okay. I developed a strong dependency on those um, I remember the last time I took Xanax I took six bars Whew. And, Whew. 
I do not remember. But I woke up Girl. the next day and his dad was all like, were you okay? You acted like a zombie. And that embarrassment alone yeah. was like, you know what? Never again will I touch those. Yeah. I think that's something that, that's a huge eye opener that I think a lot of um, addicts have. And I hate using that word addict, but you know what I mean. I think someone who struggles with substance abuse, um, one of the biggest eye openers I see that they have is when somebody else, you know, calls them out on yeah. their behavior because you don't realize just how bad it is. You know, a good friend of mine um, who has passed away now, um, I won't say her name, but well, she was a sister's friend of mine, um, would be, come over and hang out and be all hyped up and then the next thing you know, she's nodding out eating a sandwich. And she had no idea she was acting that way um, until somebody had said something to her. And I think those are the big eye openers. Yeah. So, so then what happens next? Um, well, throughout the relationship, he's verbally abusive, like, told me I was a piece of shit, I was ugly, I was useless, I couldn't survive without him, and for the longest time, I believed that, and so when he first got prescribed, um, Xanax, he got prescribed, like, the, I think the 10 milligram or whatever. Like the peaches? Yeah. Those little ones? No, actually, I think they were the white ones. Okay. So, um, I remember him and I got in a huge fight. And he had just refilled that bottle. I think there was like 13 that he had taken out or something like that. But I remember taking the whole bottle. Yeah, after I took the bottle, I ended up calling my dad in Ohio. And I told him what I did. And I told him that, um, you know, that I loved him and that I was sorry and that I'll see him next life. Um, so then I try and lay down and go to sleep. And next thing you know, the ambulance is there. And I told him, I said, I just want to sleep. You know, I don't want to. I don't want to wake up. I pissed you off. Yeah, yeah, it really did. It pissed me off. They. And he's like, No, you're not seeing me next life. I'm. I'm gonna see you today. I'm gonna see you now. Yeah. So they ended up giving me this charcoal drink. Oh, it's the stomach pump drink. It yeah. makes you like throw everything back up. Yeah. yeah. And that was really gross. When I was a teenager, I took a bottle full, like the whole bottle of my mom's like diet pills. Um, they were literally just like women's vitamins. I didn't know at the time. I thought like I was, and I was, there's a difference between people who are at the point of suicide and then I think the pre-stage to that is people that are just crying out for help. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of what that was for me. I didn't, I was never in my head where I wanted to die, but I needed something and I didn't know what yet. You know, I was like 13 or 14. And my mom's like, you're a dumbass. We're going to the ER. And, she, and then she tells me, she's like, these are daily vitamins. She's like, you might have like a zinc overdose. Like, you know what I mean? <laughs> and so I had to go drink that charcoal drink. Yeah. Um, so, so you drink this drink. Are you at the hospital at the time? Yeah. Okay. And then they keep me there for observation. Mm. And then they released me. And I was supposed to do a follow-up, but I never followed up. Right. Which I think is common for... Very common. Yep. If you weren't... If you didn't want to be there in the first place, you know, right? It's it's got to be. There's only so much anybody else can do to help you until you're ready to to receive it. Right. Um. So what's your mindset then? You get out of the hospital. You just kind of go back to yeah life as it was. Yeah, I go back to life as it was. Um, I was addicted to Percocet and Oxycontin. You know, he just gave it to me all the time. Like he would get 150 Percocets a month. That's insane. Yeah, and they were all like the high, 
high doses. doses. Yeah. Wow. Oh my goodness. But Who needs 150 of those a month? But you know, like, again, that was back in the early 2000s when you know the doctors didn't really know much about it. And yeah. Before this whole quote-unquote opiate pandemic or epidemic, yeah. whatever they're calling it. Yeah. Yep. So, you know, and Man. it was very straining because I was taking care of him because he wasn't able to take care of himself. Yeah. Um, so we were, we'd go to dialysis three times a week, three hours a day. And then we got in a huge fight. I came to Ohio for a little bit, went back to California and he was, was doing meth by the time I came back. When you got back there. Yeah. And it took me probably two, three months before I started doing it. I would ask a lot of questions and everything. The curiosity gotcha. Yeah. yeah. And then I just eventually tried it because I was around it all the time and I wanted to see what it was like. Yeah. Yeah, see that was that was one um, well, heroin and meth are two that I've never actually tried um, out of fear. But there was a time in my head, you know, my mindset where I was like, Man, I'm curious, you know, I wanna know. I I was I liked the feeling all these other drugs, and I was, I'm a teenager at the time, so I don't know shit about anything. Um, but I liked the feeling I was getting from these other fun drugs, like you know, ecstasy and Molly and, and cocaine and this and that. And I'm like, well, I, why not? But I never did finally, never did quite try it. Um, so, so you try it the first time. Was it just like that? That first time, and then just no. kept going. No, the first time I didn't really feel it. Okay. But then um, I ended up go into this one house and this guy gave me like this really huge line and I did like a little bit of it and man that had me going. A little bump gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. That had me going. And that was from there it was just on from the races. Um I remember one time I couldn't find my ex. So I was walking around Modesto, California at like three in the morning, getting, you know, rides from people I don't even know. Girl. Cause I was trying to find him. Yeah. And so I went back to like one of the hoods where he used to live or used to hang out. Now Modesto is like Toledo times a hundred. It's like the people that live there, they're all immigrants. Most of them are Cambodian or Vietnamese. They don't really speak English. So you're just all the way out of place. Just, yeah. 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 So this one, this one dude told me that he knew where my uh, ex was or my boyfriend was at the time so I hung around with him for a day he ends up putting um, ecstasy in my drink and then he ends up raping me Fuck. and then so I ended up leaving and I didn't even I didn't say anything to the cops or anything um, so I ended up finding my ex he was there were three hospitals in Modesto I went to the one where he normally goes to and then I went to the backup one and then I finally found him at the last one. Mind you, I've been walking around for days. Yeah. And the very first thing he said to me was, what took you so long? Because <laughs> at that time... Oh, man, this guy's an asshole. Yeah, at that time, we only had one phone. Because we were always together. Sharing it together. So. Okay. And I think it was like a controlled thing. Like, he didn't want me... Like, he got mad when I would talk to my family and stuff. So I was pretty much isolated, and he was able to control me that way. Yeah. Yep. So, um... When he got out of the hospital, I remember we were standing outside of the store and this other guy, he was his um, half-sister's cousin or whatever. 
Now, he was a child molester. He had pink plates in California. That's they, like the... Yeah. That's like how, how we know. have the drunk, the party plates out here? Yep, they have the, yeah, okay. they have the pink license plates. All right, Ohio, get on board. We need pink license plates for child molesters. That we do. So one time, he slipped uh, a pill in my drink. He opened, like, he opened up my pill. Because I used to drink a lot. So this one day, I drank a 211. It was a tall boy. And after, like... It was a quarter of the way done. I passed out, which is not normal for me. Right. So, you had a tolerance. Yeah. So me and my boyfriend at the time went through his stuff, found like three big ass bags of like pills. Damn. That we dumped down the toilet. Yeah. Damn. Yeah, because he was doing it to a lot of women. Yeah. Um. So he was making fun of my boyfriend, and I remember beating him up, and then the cops were called, and. They, you know, I told them what happened and they told me, they were more concerned about the rape. They're like, why didn't you tell us that you were, why didn't you come to us and tell us you were raped? Right. And I was like, because I was scared. So when I was 16. You're also in this lifestyle, the cop, a cop is not the first person that comes to your mind. When, no, they're when the last. In the lifestyle you're living. <laughs> they're yeah. the last people. Yep. For real. But when I was 16 and after I was sexually assaulted, um, I had to go to take a polygraph test to prove that it, it was true. You were telling the truth, yeah. Yeah, because back then, it was when you actually had to prove it. You couldn't just say, oh, this person... Before the Me Too movement. Yeah. Yeah, I gotcha. So, that was traumatic. Which I think is why a lot of women don't come forward is because, you know, there's that fear of, what if I go through all of this and then somebody calls me a liar? Like that, Yeah. you know, I'll share something I didn't think I was going to share on this podcast, but um, I was... Not raped, but I was molested when I was 11 or 12. Um, and I immediately, the very next day, went to my aunt and my cousins and told them what happened. Like, this just happened. Um, and it was by a family member. Um, and at first, and still to this day, like, my cousins got my back. I know they ain't. Um, I know they know I'm telling the truth. But there was a, a moment where... Um, I was being questioned as to whether or not I was telling the truth. And me at 11 years old, like, didn't even think that, that wasn't even the scope of possibilities. I was like, oh, this is messed up. I'm telling, you yeah. know? And then when when that, when that I was questioned, like, I might be lying, I sunk, you know, like, just like a little scared dog. I couldn't believe it. And I was like, they think I'm lying. And there was nothing more dreadful than trying to, you know, you know how it is anyway. If you're telling someone the truth and they're telling you you're a liar, that's the most irritating thing in the world. Because yeah. what else am I supposed to do? Right. You want me to switch the story up and pick some better words? Like, it's still the truth. Right. Um, I think that's why a lot of women don't come forward and they don't go through with charges because it's really uh, difficult to, to put onto somebody to try to prove their, their innocence or their, their truth. Yeah. Um, really anyway, is. so you, you do the polygraph and then what comes after that? So like at the polygraph test, it came back inconclusive. When we first got there, my dad and I went to Bowling Green and they had those fire doors, some really thick oak doors. Yeah. So I was in the room with the guy that was giving me the test. The door was closed. My dad was in the room across the hallway and that door was closed and he could hear the guy yelling at me. This guy was yelling at me at the top of his lungs, telling me I wanted it, it was my fault. The polygraph guy? Yeah. Girl, what? Yeah, like he accused me all the way, 
and was like, you're just saying this because you don't want to get in trouble and blah, blah, blah. And oh, so, I had to put my hands on him. How to cut a case. Yeah, my dad was ready to come through that door. Oh, my goodness. So then he gave me the test right after he yelled at me. So Now you're shaking up. and yeah, yeah, so my anxiety is high, so I fail it. And then we wait two hours, and then he gives me the test again, and it came back positive that I was telling that the you truth. you were telling the truth. And at that point, I would have been like, no, I need somebody else. This guy's got to go. Yeah. Man, what a mess. Yeah, so then we waited another hour, and then they gave it again, and I was just so over, over it, it that it came back inconclusive. So they couldn't prove because of that polygraph Because it came test. back all three different ways. Yeah. Polygraphs are difficult to use in court anyway, but... Yeah. yeah. Especially when you're, like, yelled at and being accused, and it's like... You know, I was 16 at the time. I was going to church on a regular basis. Like, to me, sex wasn't even a thought. Yeah. I didn't even have a boyfriend. So it was just kind of one of those, like... Oh, so this wasn't because of the rape in California. This was from when you were a teenager here in Ohio. Yeah. Gotcha. Okay. So this... By the time you're doing this polygraph, this is years later that no, you're doing this? No, this was uh, several months after. After that happened. Okay. Yeah. I just want to make sure we're on the right timeline. So we're going back a little bit back to when you are a teenager yep. to do that polygraph. Okay. Yeah, because uh, my dad wanted to press charges, so they needed that for court. And so he was the one that was all like, you know, let's do this, let's do this. Yeah. You know, I want to get the guy. Yeah, trying and, to get justice. Yeah, and I was 16. Fortunately, that's not so simple. It's not. And so when I was 16, I didn't, I never really opened up about my feelings. So I always kept everything bottled up inside. I went to several yeah. therapists and they tried to give me medication and I didn't want medication. You know, it was, I just, if you couldn't get me to open up, it was like pulling teeth. Yeah, and after, you know, we discussed with your childhood, like with your mom just leaving you places and. Um, especially you said you were four or two. Yeah, your brother two. was four. Yep. Um, and those first five years of a child's life are so incredibly important. So that you were already, um, I don't want to use the word molded, but like you had developed the, the sense of I only got me. You know what I mean? Or, mm-hmm. or me and my siblings, we, we got each other. So yeah, fast forward to being a teenager, I can see why that was so... You were so strong in that, like I'm not opening up, I'm not talking about it, I'm not sharing with anybody. Yeah. Um, so let's let's go to um, fast forward a little bit to when you ended up getting treatment. How did you get to the point where you were court ordered to go get treatment? So this was two years ago. Okay. Uh, and when they picked me up at the motel, they kept me in jail um and i remember trying and this was on that indictment you yep. said he had okay and i remember trying to you know get out on ankle monitor and judge robinson asked me where i'd go and i said the magnus in motown he said absolutely not <laughs> no nope. he said nope and he said you will stay in jail until you're sentenced and then i ended up going back in front of him and i moved in with a family friend she's in aa she's a great lady I've known her for a very long time. Yeah. She's got 30, I believe 32 years of sobriety in. And she's someone that you consider a support system. Yes. Okay. Yes. So you move in with her. And I was on ankle monitor and I was doing the whole drug court thing. Yeah. But I was kind of like half-assing it. Like, yeah. 
I wanted to be there, but I didn't want to be there. I was doing everything I was supposed to do, thinking, oh, as soon as I get done, you know, I'm going to go right back to using. Yep. Like, this is just so that way they get Let off me my just back. get this over with, yeah. Yeah. And I ended up relapsing. And then when I relapsed, I was angry at myself because, like, I thought that's the lifestyle I wanted, but that one relapse was so horrible. Yeah. Like, I was in a room and it's like the house was really nice on the outside but on the inside it was just completely trashed it was a tweaker house i was gonna say so it was a it was the spot yeah it okay. was a tweaker house and it was like you know i've seen this guy he was painting rocks with nail polish for like four hours <laughs> i'm like i don't want my life to be like this is that. not my future this is not what i had remembered so your true like fork in the road wasn't before you started receiving treatment, it was after that first relapse. Yeah. So you were you were pushed into treatment, you decided, and I think that's very common too. I think people can relate to that, that a lot of times the first uh, introduction to any kind of treatment they have is either forced to do it or trying to get their family off their back. Like, you know, my mom, uh, when she was still struggling with drug abuse, she always wanted, like, she always wanted to be sober. Um, she was kind of a binger, so it was just like, she'd get overwhelmed, things would be too much, she'd be like, ah, I'm gone, you know? Yeah. Um, but the first few times, she and she would never do, like, an inpatient thing. She would just kind of go to a, like, detox or go to a quick little thing. And that was always to just, like, get us off her back, you know, get her parents off her back, just... Um, so that's familiar, I think. I think that's common with a lot of people. But you're in the treatment, you're thinking, you're doing everything you're supposed to do. You're staying sober, but in your head, you're like, as soon as this is done, I'm getting high. Yeah. Um, then you decide during this to go get high, and that was it for you. That was like, you were like, oh wait, this is not what I want. This. Yeah. So you got a little bit of taste of what sobriety could mean for you and the future it could give you. Okay, so, so I, then when you go back after this relapse, you're ready now. I well, yeah, for the most part I was. Like I ment mentally you were in it. Mentally, I wasn't. Okay. But my heart was. Okay. Because, so, I went, after I relapsed, I was, we were in drug court, and I remember the judge, because I was talking to somebody in jail, and I wasn't supposed to be talking to somebody in jail, and I had told them about my relapse, and I was like, you know, I just want to do a line. Fuck it. Yeah. And the judge, when he seen that, he said, oh, you want to do a line? He's like, I'll keep you from doing a line. So he sentenced me right there gotcha. to CCNO. So I sat in CCNO for a while, and then he, he, um, when I had video court, he was telling me that I had to go to Stranity Haven. And so as he was telling me, I rose my hand and he said, yeah, I was like, I don't want to go to Stranity Haven. And I said, like, I just want to do my time. And he sat there for a good five minutes. And Erica, the drug court coordinator, walked up and I'm like fuck because mm. I already knew that she was gonna talk him out of letting me do my time because he was about ready to just let me do my was, time. yeah just whatever and she's yeah. like no yeah so he he was like you know Erica reminded me that I'm the judge you don't get to pick your poison I do he's like so you have to do Serenity Haven and I, so what <laughs> was your mindset when you wanted to just stay in jail just you just didn't want the treatment you just wanted to get this over with i was just like you know because i was really hard on myself i was like i'm a piece of shit i can't leave i fucked up i lost trust of everybody again you didn't feel like you even deserved 
Yeah. You, you felt like you were getting what you deserved. Like you yeah. just deserved to be down and out the rest of your life. Yeah. Okay. So I I didn't have faith in myself. Okay. And that was the thing. I gave up on myself. I gave up on myself a lot. Yeah. Given my past, like I just felt like that's what I deserved. Yep. You know, life was hard and it was normal for me to have a hard life. Yep. And I think I've been there. Yeah, and a lot of my choices made it even harder. Yep. But it was easier to stay in that lifestyle than to get out. Absolutely. And so throughout There's something so strong about routine, there's something so strong about environment because you know that there's better out there, yeah. but you get so comfortable in the mess and the trauma that you're living in. Yeah. And I, I know exactly what you mean there. So, um, so you, he sent you to Serenity. Yeah, I told him that I was gonna run, and he, <laughs> said, he said, "Have fun with that. You'll be on GPS ankle monitor." I'm like, "Fuck, oh, gotcha." Yes. <laughs> you know. And he told me that he's like, and if you do run, he's like, you that is an escape charge. He's like, and you will do every bit of 36 months. Yeah. And I believed him. Yep. So. That first night was really hard. I told the lady, I was like, I don't want to be here. I'm like, how long is it going to be? And she's like, well, you know, if you do really good, some people get done in 72 days. And I said, be real with me. I was like, don't sugarcoat it. Yeah. I was like, how long am I probably going to be here? She's like, three or four months. Yeah. And I was like, fuck, I don't want to be here. Like, so I remember that night was really hard because one of the places I used to go get meth from was like a mile and a half down the road from where I was. Oh man. Yeah. And you hear that Serenity Haven, y'all are gonna have to move because you got the plug right around the corner. <laughs> yeah. So I remember that night, it was really hard. I had all this anxiety. I just wanted to run, mm -hmm. but it's like I didn't, something inside me just uh, was like, you know what? Just see how tomorrow goes. Right. So when I was in court, I was very disrespectful. I sat in the very back. I had my, I was pretty much just looking at the ceiling. Yeah. Like, you know, I made it known that I didn't want to be there. Yeah. And then Erica points out to the judge, you see what she's doing? She's being disrespectful. And the judge, he's like, I see. And so at the end of drug court, he has a microphone and he is yelling at me. Ooh. Like he had my ass. <laughs> and after that, I did a complete 180 because I realized that I'm in this. Regardless, I have to do it. You might so, as well give it the best shot. Exactly. Yeah. And that's what I was saying on the way back from drug court was like, you know, I was like, this just showed me that this is what I have to do. So your heart was in it after the relapse and your head was in it after, after Drug, drug court. court. Yeah. Okay. And so I started working on everything. I figured, you know, I grew up in AA. Yeah. Um, so my dad's got 33 years. No, he has 34 years. That's incredible. Yes. Yeah, so, that is awesome. So I grew up going to meetings. And then you said that you had um, that, that lady you were talking about that your support system. She had 32 years sobriety. Yep. Great support system to have. Yeah, my sponsor. Absolutely. My sponsor is thirty six years. Nice. She's been my sponsor since two thousand nine. She ain't giving up on you. Nope. She ain't gonna let you give up on yourself. No, she's not. So how long? How long you been sober now? Today is uh, April twenty eighth, twenty twenty two. Um, a year and I think in a couple of days I'll have a year and four months. Hell yeah, girl! Congratulations. Yeah. Yeah. That's so exciting. It. I do. I. I really get so hyped up over this stuff because I see it like, oh my God, I'm getting emotional. <laughs> yeah, all right. I'm sorry. 
It came out of nowhere. But I, I, there's so many people in my life that um, I have had the joy and, the, and been able to watch get sober and get better. And it's so freaking exciting because you get so stuck in a point where you're just leaving negative ripple effects everywhere you go, just yeah. negative impacts everywhere you go. And then you get to the point, like you said, where you just feel like, this is my life. I deserve this. Yeah. But your, your being sober right now is a positive ripple effect on everybody you, that you encounter. Everybody in your, you have the opportunity now to just spread positivity ever, everywhere. And not yeah. everybody, you know, gets that opportunity. Unfortunately, there's an outrageous number of people um, who will die before they get that chance. Yeah. Um, you know, I, my best friend passed away in 2018, um, and she didn't get that chance to really, to have her, uh, her moment of clarity. Um, and so many people like her never got that chance. So I'm really proud of you. I hope you're incredibly proud of yourself because yeah, I am. It feels good, girl. It should. You're out here just spreading positivity all over the world. It feels it's possible good. if you can do it. Anybody can do it. Anybody I'm, can. I have a lot of people that look up to me, and it feels really good. Like they ask me for advice. My sister's got um, over two years, and she, when she struggles with things, she comes to me and talks to me about it because I did have three years of sobriety at one point and I was going to Al-Anon, so I do have that knowledge. Yeah. So, you know, um, she asked me, like, she'll ask me questions and everything, and one of my friends I used to use with him, Yeah. he's also in drug court, and he tells me all the time that he looks up to me, and he's like, you know, if you can do it, he's like, you're, he's like, you're giving me the example, and he's Absolutely. like, now I wanna do it because I see you do it, and see, one of my favorite sayings is that you do not have to have your shit together to be somebody's blessing. Um, you know, it, you don't have to be perfect. You you can still be there. Or you, can, you can have an effect on somebody that you may not even know that you're having. You know right. what I mean? So, um, so even in that three years of sobriety, even if you messed up again, even if you fell back downhill, um, like you said, you got that knowledge. Yeah. You can still be somebody else's blessing. Um, so now we're... We're pushing, we're pushing a year and a half. You're about a year and four months in yep. to sobriety. How's it feel? It feels really good, honestly. I remember at one point saying, I used to say all the time when I'd be in the dope house, I'd sell my soul to, to the devil to be with my son. And now I get my son all the time. Yes. Weekends, I yes. see him in the mornings and it's like, man, it's all it really That's it right there. That's yeah. the positive ripple effect. Your yeah. son, I mean, and there's no, I'm there nothing like your mommy. I don't care what anybody says. There's you can't replace a mother. You can't. Um, so I'm happy for him. I'm excited for him that he gets to have that sober mom. You yeah. know what I mean? Um, so what are you doing now? Right now I'm working at uh, Fulton County Processing. I work third shift. It's a good job. Yeah. A few it people is. there making some good money there. Yeah. So I'm a clerk there. So I enter the trucks. Like when the trucks come in, they give me their receivers. I enter them in. Then I go mic and measure the coils, write them up. Right, right. I'm really good at that. Um, I've been learning. I learn. I know how to do the crane there. Um, one of my favorite workers, he's my transport driver, Josh Greenhill. He told me to give him a shout out. Hey, what's <laughs> up, Josh? How you doing? <laughs> he's my fave. But he he was teaching me how to drive the transporter, which is like basically. Um, a forklift on steroids. A <laughs> forklift on steroids. All Pretty right. much. Check you out, Josh. Skilled. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, he's actually one of my big supports. You know, and I didn't ever think 
that he would be a big support because we never really worked the same shift but he's him being on 12s he comes in at three so we you know there for a little while we'll sit there and shoot the shit and yeah just you know and it feels good that when stuff happens at work i'm one of the first people he calls yeah and vice versa and it's it's really cool the relationship that we have that's awesome and he always told me he said if you ever feel like you're gonna fuck up he's like call me yeah he's like i will go to a meeting with you that's awesome and yeah. see that's that's what i mean when people see you it's it's easy to feel like people are writing writing you off when you're when you're down and out um but when people see you wanting it for yourself that's when your support system will grow, just like it is. So, yeah. um, just out of my curiosity, when did you meet Rob? Um, I met Rob back in I want to say 2017. And was that through 2018? Um, that was from Recover Renewed Mind. Renewed Minds. Okay. Yes. And that was that. I just don't know how any of this works, so I'm curious. Was that with like through drug court, like court ordered you Renewed Mind? No, that was on my own free will. Awesome. So, um, I lost custody of my son in, I want to say, maybe it was 2019. No, it was 2018. Okay. I lost custody of my son. Um, and I was living out here on Jay in a trailer. Okay. I was working at Haas Door at the time. And I was just really bad on meth. And, but I... It got pretty nasty out here, man. Yeah. I used it. And I said that I used it because I have ADHD, so I was self-treating. This was your little lateral. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I was self-treating, but it was really hard because I was a single mom at the time. Mm -hmm. So I would work from 4.30 p.m. till 3.30 a.m. And then I'd go home, get some sleep. My stepmom would drop my son off at like 10 o'clock in the morning. So from 10 on up, I had to be up with my son because yeah. he was you know, a toddler at the time. Yeah. So I got into meth to help me stay up for that. I use that as an excuse. Right. Right. Um, so then after I lost custody of him, I realized that I was pregnant, but oh. I was already three months pregnant before I knew I was, I was pregnant. Damn. Now with my son, I, he was born, um, three months early. I had preeclampsia. So oh, my blood pressure was 181 over 100. Yeah. I was in the hospital for eight days. The last four days I was on oxygen because I couldn't breathe. Yeah, I take that shit serious. I had like yeah. slightly elevated blood pressure and they're like, go to sleep. I'm shutting curtains and freaking out. So that, that preeclampsia yeah. is scary. Yeah, they couldn't they couldn't um, get my blood pressure down to past 164. It was high the whole time I was in, in the hospital. Was that why? Did they take him early? Because yeah. of that, they induce you? Yeah, okay. um, I had an emergency C-section. Okay. So then, with my daughter, I was afraid to go to the hospital because... You had already been using. Well, not only that, but I knew with my son how traumatic it was with my son. Oh, so you were just scared Yeah. to even yeah. face being pregnant. Yeah. Yeah. So um, I ended up having a stillbirth. I'm sorry. Um, in 2019. I'm sorry to hear that. And it really sucks because her birthday is five days before my son's birthday. Um, she was one pound nine ounces. He was one pound ten ounces. Aww. She was 19 or 12 and a half inches and he was 13. Wow. So it was like, you know, but like they say, God does for you what you cannot do for yourself. Yep. 
Um, at that point, my son, extremely jealous of anybody to have my attention. And, and, and you know, your son needed that, that undivided attention from you at that time, so. Yeah, and not only that, but I don't know if I could have took another heartache of, you know, because I knew that they would have taken the baby yep. as soon as she was born. And I didn't know if I could face that as well. So yeah. that was another thing I was running from. Yeah. So then shortly after that, I went back to work, but I missed a lot of days. I think I went back too soon. And then um, this girl that I used to hang out with, she was going to Rob's groups. Okay. So that's how I was introduced. Because shortly after that, was, and this was after they, they, when did they take your son? When did you lose custody of him? In December. Was this a, like a, a, when you had the stillbirth? Um, it was a couple months prior to that, yeah. A couple months prior to the stillbirth, okay. Yeah. Um, okay, so I was just curious how you, how you got into meeting Rob, because he's got, you know, amazing things to say about you. He really does. He's, yeah. He's really proud of you. He's been like my, one of my number one supports. Um, I've been talking to him on and off through this whole entire process. Yeah. When I got out of jail and I was on ankle monitor, like, I would talk to him about stuff. Like, you know, I realized that, it, I don't know if it was really the drug that I was addicted to or the lifestyle itself. Yeah, see, Rob always says the gateway drug is trauma um, and that, you know, people use for one of two reasons, to run from something or to, feel, or to not feel anything or to feel something. Yeah. Um, so, so yeah, the substance obviously has like a chemical value to it that creates a dependency, but I think the, the bigger part of addiction is, um, is the lifestyle and the, the um, freedom, I guess, from reality, you yeah. know what I mean? Um, so, all right, so we, you go through all these trials, you go through all these different, like you said, multiple rock bottoms. Yeah. Um, then here you are now, 14 months sober, got a good job, you, and you, do you have your son? Oh, um, you're, yeah, you, you're seeing your son now, you told me yep. that. So, yeah, you're in a great place. You're on You're on your way, girl. I know. It feels really good. Like, good. I, actually, I have a house with um, with my best friend, um, and it's, it's a really nice house. You know, I have money saved up. You I feel actually, good to go home. You live yeah. comfortable. Yeah. I had to uh, put new struts in my car. That was $400. I was able to pay for that. The fact that you just had, you're like, I got, I got 400 to spend on that. Got yeah, this. Yeah, yeah. that's yeah. awesome. It feels, it feels so good. Yeah, and you know, and it is, like I said, you know, a little bit ago, those positive ripple effects that you have on people, you will not always see them. You may not always see it, but every time you interact in your community and anytime you're out and about. Um, you leave an effect and, and it's up to you whether you're going to leave negative effects or positive effects and right now you're, you're doing everything you need to do. You're going to be, I think that this podcast is going to be a hit because I think you're going to be an inspiration to so many people. I think that we, we all, especially in Fulton County with it being so, there's so many drugs here. Yeah. I mean you can find whatever you want in a hop, skip and a jump. But, and there's so many people that struggle with, with substance abuse or are related to someone or close to someone or, or involved in some way with substance abuse. Um, you don't always get to hear the, the redemption story. Right. You know what I mean? People start getting better and you just stop seeing them at the dope house. You just stop seeing them around, but you don't really know what happens. Mm -hmm. um, so I think this is going to be um, a pretty positive impact. I think people are going to hear this and be pretty inspired by it. So yeah. I really appreciate you coming with us or coming here for us today. Is there anything else you want to say before we go? 
that I don't know so what I've learned is that right now I'm doing forward-facing trauma and I realized that there's a lot of things in my past that is hard for me to talk about yeah. but I do know that if I don't work on those things that trauma will bring me back up yeah um, and because so that is that is the gateway yeah. drug yep it really is and since I've been sober I've started to realize not only my drug triggers, which I don't really have anymore, but I have a lot of trauma triggers. Yeah. And the one thing, because I used to be like really high strung, like I couldn't sit still. Yeah. Like, and my PO asked me the other day, he's like, so you feel like you have your anxiety under control? He's like, what have you done differently? And I told him, I said, I talk about it. If something's bothering me, get it out. I get it out because if I don't, then it just festers inside me. Yep. It builds then, up. Yep. And, you know, I used to get the fuckets really bad, and now it's like I don't get those fuckets because yeah. I see how life is today, and I would never trade what I have today. Sometimes sobriety does get boring. Yeah. You know? Sure. But at the end of the day, I'll take this boring-ass life over, you know. And it only, it only has to be, you know, boring for now. I think the, the thing... For me, what, what makes it not so boring is the possibilities you have now. Yeah. The, op, the, the, the opportunities you have for a future now are so much greater than what they were. You know what I mean? So um, it's a little boring right now. You're just kind of doing your day in and day out. Um, but you can do amazing things. You really can. You can be, you know, I think from hearing your story, maybe for the first time in your life, you can be exactly who you want to be. Yeah. You, can do what, you can be who you want to be. You can learn the skills you want to learn or maybe a talent you want to pick up or get into some different hobbies that you want to um, because like you said you got spare money to put some struts on your cars so yeah. you, you got a little money that would have gone to drugs that you can now use for a hobby pick up a new hobby find something that you really enjoy doing with your free time so mm -hmm. um, opportunities are endless here for you girl yeah they really are I'm, I'm proud of you man I'm excited <laughs> I'm excited you. for you I see <laughs> it I see y'all I see your future it's, it's looking it, good it feels really good too and it's nice that, so my middle sister, she was the one that had called CPS and got my son taken. And for the longest time, I was mad at her and yeah. I was really mean to her. And I'd go out of my way every time I'd seen her to make her uncomfortable. Yeah. And it's like, now she'll text me and tell me she loves me. Yeah. You know, and it's because I realized that what she was doing was she didn't want to hurt me. She, she never called to despite him. You. Yeah. She never called us. And some people, unfortunately, do use the. Uh, uh, children's services system um, as a weapon yeah uh, but but you realize later that for your sister it was never despite you it was right it for was... your son's best interest yeah okay well good I'm glad you guys have a relationship now and yeah it feels good 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 yeah I think your relationships are gonna just grow stronger and stronger your support system is gonna grow larger you got me now I'm on yeah. your I'm on your team give me a call you got my number yeah you ever my, need anything my foreman at work um, I know I can come to him with any problem and he'll help me out with it there was one guy that was high as fuck, um, ran a coil into a coil, and I told him, I said, I'm not going to work with that. And so he did something about it and yeah. made sure, he always makes sure that I'm safe. Um, I know if I have a problem or if I'm struggling with something, and it's nice that I not only have it, this support in AA, but I have it at work. I have it pretty much wherever life. I go. Yeah. Yeah. I, I talk to Rob a lot, like, especially when I'm struggling with stuff because he does have a lot of good things to say. Yeah. And 
so he can I can relate to him a lot. Yeah, he's and that's I think that's uh, that's why I love that this is what he chose yeah. um, when he started going to school and he's like, um, yeah, I'm, I'm gonna do this. I don't know if he told you I'm his stepdaughter, but I watched this whole thing grow into what it is. So like as I'm looking back on when he first started this, I'm really excited he chose this line of work because he is. He's been there, done that. You know what I mean? He's yeah. He's got the, he's like, I'm going to age you now, Rob, but he's like 60. <laughs> <laughs> I, don't, I don't really know. I think he's like 58, 59, but um, he's lived an entire, he had an entire life before this life. Yeah. So he's got the, he's got a lot of experience and a lot of relatable um, history, but also now the knowledge that yeah. you gain with having a master's of psychology all on top of that previous lifestyle makes it really relatable. Yeah. Um, Sorry guys, I'm not trying to like hype up my uh, my co-host here, Rob, but he's <laughs> he, he's, he's that great. dude. <laughs> yeah, he really is. Um, so thanks again for coming with us, Dana. Coming and being here with us. This one's uh, this is gonna be a good one. Really excited for it. Thank you. Uh, if you guys want, if you guys are seeing this, uh, please give it a share, a like, spread the word. This is our Road to Redemption series for Community Accountability Equals the Cure. Uh, all of the socials will be linked. Go follow us on all our little socials. I don't know if we're gonna be on Spotify or. Uh, Apple Music yet by the time you hear this, but we'll get them links going soon too, working on that. So thanks, thanks for being here and we'll see you guys next time. Thank you.